The fossil record, flawed as it may be, tells a uniform story, cycles of flora and fauna rising and passing through the ages as the natural variations in climate and the new apex predator, humans, rise to power. That, at least, is the story we're told. Welcome to Quirks of Creation. Everybody and welcome back to another episode of Quirks of Creation. I'm your host Jess Holmes, and joining me, as always, is Elise. Hey, Elise! Yay! Hello, we're back. Welcome, everybody. Happy Friday! It's Friday. It's Quirks of Creation Day, and we're getting into the crazy stuff as always. Yeah, I am excited for this crazy theory that I've never been able to wrap my head around. So I just have to give kudos to you, Jess, because. I was reading her notes and I'm like, oh my word, I get it. It makes sense. I've heard about this for a long time and you're, you know, she just does what she does. She comes in, she makes this like super easy to understand and I'm excited for everybody to hear about it and learn it kind of with me. And (laughs) I appreciate that because like, it's a lot to dig through. It's so much geological data and it's, it's hard because they rely so heavily on radiocarbon dating. And we've talked a lot about the geological timescales and like how pretty unreliable they are just based on how they evaluate the decay rate of these elements. And so just yes. like before we even get started, make sure you take the timescales with a grain of salt because they can't actually know how long ago everything was, but they can know relative to each period. I think. Right. Yeah. And keep in mind, it's all a theory. Right. Right. Which I think some people who are into this tend to forget that it's a theory. <laughs> right. Until God says, so this is it. All we can do is give our best guesstimate. And in science, we feel pretty good about our guesstimates. Yeah. But at the same time, we also get proven wrong a lot of times. And that's just part of it. Yeah. Exactly. So, well, it's it's interesting and fascinating, and it's not, uh, you know, it's nothing we can point to and be like, yes, this happened. But it is like there's a lot, there's a lot here. So anyway, I'll let you dive into it because, yeah. Before we jump in, real quick, I do want to give a shout out to our newest local subscriber, sixty seventy nine Smith W. Thank you so much for joining our locals community. We're so happy to have you. Thank you. We're going to be having some new content coming out soon. So, yeah, stay tuned. And if you're not a part of our locals community, you should definitely jump on over there at quirksofcreation.locals.com so you can catch our bonus content like quirks or quacks and some new stuff that may be coming your way. Who knows? Hmm. <laughs> I'm and of course, as always, we'll review. Uh, words are hard. We'll read our reviews from Apple Podcasts at the end of the show. So if you left us a review, stay tuned to get your special shout out. But let's dive right in. And before we jump like fully, fully in, I feel like I need to set the stage and talk about geological timescales because we're going to be referring to them a lot. And 
it's kind of hard if you don't have at least a small picture in your mind of the time period we're talking about. Yes, definitely. So let's jump on over. And I know this image is huge. And I'm sorry if you are not watching and you're just listening. It's like this giant graph of geological time. So just to like kind of break it down into like words instead of images, eons are the biggest division of time. So think you're several hundred millions of years to 2 billion years and eons are made up of eras and eras are made up of periods and periods are made up of epochs. And like, it all breaks down into these different chunks and the area we're primarily going to be focusing on is right before the Holocene epoch, which is our current epoch, which supposedly began 11,700 years ago after the last major ice age. How they know exactly that date? Mm. It's it's a good one. <laughs> it's a good guess. <laughs> right. Interesting. We'll come back to this later. But interestingly enough, Plato kind of mentions this, this time period as being important in his stories about Atlantis. Mm. Like he has a direct reference to this timeline. Literally. Yeah. <laughs> Just like... So, 11,000 years ago, like, Atlantis sank or something like that. And he says it not exactly like that, obviously. I'm paraphrasing because I don't think Plato would use quite like, layman terms. Dude. Dude. It totally dude. happened 11,000 years ago and Atlantis sunk. Sunk. Like a rock. <laughs> and he was talking not um, metaphorically or... right. You know, it was pretty, he was stating it as fact when he said this, correct? It wasn't, you know, verbally or, yeah. Yeah. And so that's kind of like the setup of the era we're talking in. And then, of course, there's a little bit of historical setup, too. <laughs> like what bookstore the horse? <laughs> Those sounds like Trump. Oh, no. That's like... <laughs> I don't know if that's blasphemous or not. To, you know. <laughs> Does that mean you do too? That was a good impression then. Oh, was that my Trump impression? I don't know. <laughs> uh, totally no stuff about Atlantis. It was the huge. greatest Atlantis. It was huge. You got the most votes <laughs> until it sunk and it was stolen by Poseidon. Nailed it. This show's already gone off the rails. Yep. yep. It's probably not going to get much better. I'm excited. Nope. <laughs> sorry you clicked on this show, guys. <laughs> sorry, not sorry. Right. Bring it on. So we've talked a lot in the past about uniformitarianism and mm. catastrophism. And this battle between the geologists who think that the Earth has always done the same thing over millions and billions of years and it's just cycles of climate and whatever are warring against the the geologists who believe in things like the the comet that killed the dinosaurs whose name i can't i know we just went over how to pronounce it and i already <laughs> so did i Chaxi the chicxulub 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 yep. Something like Chuck's that. Salute. Yeah, something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Believe in that meteor. Believe in the great flood. 
and of course believe in what we're going to be talking about in regards to Younger Dryas impact theory. Mm-hmm. So you have these two warring factions and it's hard because people believed in catastrophism primarily yeah. throughout history until this guy, Abraham Gottlob Werner, what a name, right? Yeah. yeah. The Germans, I swear. The Germans and their <laughs> But he comes along in the 18th century and he proposes this idea of Neptunism that strata were deposited from the sea shrinking and precipitating into primordial rocks like granite. And so this geologist, James Hutton, took that idea and proposed that the earth undergoes these self-maintaining cycles based on natural history. And this is where it first begins to take root. I know we want to blame it all on Charles Darwin. Who's it like. It started before him. It started before him. The, yeah. Just the, the seeds of this idea that we evolved out of nothing, that everything has always been here. It just had to take enough time. Yeah. Did start before Darwin, I yes. guess is what I really want to say. It started and he kind of picked it up and ran with it, with his theory of evolution. Right. Which I think it would be fun to do an episode on Darwin one of these days because I feel like a lot of people get him wrong. Yeah. Oh, I agree. He was uh, very misunderstood, I think. So, yeah. By both. By both. Yes. Both. The creationist Christians and the evolutionary atheists both just don't get what he was actually after. Definitely. Um, but yeah, so before Darwin even comes along, you have these two guys, Abraham Werner and James Hutton, who are proposing this idea that maybe geological history was not based on the biblical flood account. And that was huge for their time, right? Because yeah, at that time, like places like Germany, Europe, America, they were all deeply Christian at yes. this point. Yes. And it's funny to me how we go from one extreme to the other. I mean if you pay attention to history at all, you can, you see that you see the fluctuation. And so right. today, not that long ago when people kind of re re suggested or suggested again, the flood myth, right. That they're shunned and like, how dare you? That's, that's myth and, and crazy talk and you can't even be taken seriously. And then, but then I'm sure they dealt with that too, to be fair, yeah. they dealt with that too. Like, how could you not think it was these things? I mean, just. Right. It is this weird cycle of, okay, this idea has been tradition, so to speak, right, yeah. for so long. How dare you question it? How dare you bring evi- any supposed evidence against it? But then that new theory becomes the new tradition. Yeah. And that you can't question. Right. Yes. And so it's just this constant replacing of the old faith with a new faith, typically a more Gnostic sort of faith. <clears throat> yeah, absolutely. And I think not to get too much into them, but I don't want to say kudos to them for questioning, but at the same time, yes, thank you for questioning all these things. Right. Because even... Even with our faith, you still have to keep questioning things. Anyway, I'm just trying. I guess I'm trying to be fair to both sides, but not. Play I think the that's more honest, middle. though. I think yeah. it is fair to question. I think our God is big enough to handle our questions, you know. Yeah. And he he holds up to the answers. Anyone, especially a Christian who uh, struggles 
with the answers or struggles to look for. I'm not saying there are answers for everything, right. you know, because uh, right. at some point we're going to have to take some something on faith. And that's true of both sides. Yeah. Right. Like we've talked about before. Yeah. But God is big enough for our questions. Yeah. And the funny thing is, is that the uniformitarian God is not big enough to handle the questions, which we will soon find out. But (laughs) before we get into all that, I just want to talk just a little bit about the background of these two guys, Abraham Warner and James Hutton, because I think their history kind of gives us some good insight into why they pursued these paths. So Abraham Warner was like in the Saxon mining service. So it's like, okay, he's a rock guy, right? Yeah. Yeah. That's kind of his thing, his life. (laughs) Right. And, his background is really weird because the people around him were accusing him of being an atheist. And he's like, no, I'm a pious. First of all, I didn't know what a pious was. I was like, he worships pies? <laughs> Question mark? Question mark? Pie is <laughs> delicious. Pie is delicious. Like, kind of get it. Yeah. Um, but it's just very generalized spirituality. That whole I'm spiritual Agnostic but not religious of. claim. Yeah. 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 Got it. And it's kind of funny that he names his theory Neptunism. Yeah. And I get that it's because his theory was that these sedimentary layers were deposited by water. So they connect water to Mm -hmm. Neptune. But I find it interesting that they specifically pick this like, I can't remember if Neptune is Greek or Roman. I think he's Roman, right? Roman. Roman. Poseidon is the Greek. Yeah. You're right. Yeah. So they picked this Roman god to name his theory after. That's weird. It's weird. <laughs> you see that? See that a lot. <laughs> yeah, it's odd. <laughs> it's odd. Uh, what was okay? Neptunism was um, Werner's Werner's thing, right? Yes. Okay. And then Hutton proposed Plutonism, right? <laughs> of course, they're picking all of these Roman gods, but Plutonism is saying, okay, instead of waters depositing sediment it's coming from volcanic rock and Mm. from the eruption of heat sinks from the earth's core to create new rock and land and it's kind of like they're both right but also both wrong right okay that's kind of what i thought too is like that's kind of it but anyway yeah because they're both saying that this is happening over time i think uh one of hutton's quotes I have here is he says time is to nature endless the result of our present inquiry is that we find no vestige of a beginning no prospect of an end to him it's turtles all the way down it's time without end it's been the same since the beginning and it always will be right that's mm, I have such a big tangent but I'm saving it for later because I think it'll be more relevant later but okay yes (laughs) warning Ooh, I'm ready. I love your tangents. (laughs) But then we get this sucker, this guy, my man, Charles Lyle. I'm over him Mm -hmm. because uniformitarian, like we can blame Werner and Hutton for creating the seeds of the idea, but Lyle really, he coined the word uniformitarianism. Gotcha. And he he published these multi-volume texts called The Principles of Geology, which people still use today. I'm like, you haven't, uh, like, I get it, you're rock nerds, but you haven't updated. And I'm sure they're not dry at all. Oh, I'm sure. Very, very not dry. (laughs) 
like not to be uh, a science weirdo, but it's like, it was always like this in college. It's like the chemists are the ones who make friends with everybody because we have to know a little bit of everything. The physicists are the kids who play D&D in the study room. <laughs> and then the geologist kids you never see because they're out in the back covered in dirt. That makes sense. That right. Makes sense. Yeah. And they're like kind of weird. <laughs> they're kind of weird. Nancy, <laughs> <laughs> but are they stoned? Question mark? I, I mean, mean, probably. Yeah. Yeah. Especially in college, right? Yeah. College is a weird time, man. <laughs> I like it. But yeah, this guy, Charles Lyle. And I think this is where people find the connection with Dar- Darwin because he was friends with Darwin. Mm, right. So, They're buddies. Yeah. He, yeah. I think he was pulling a lot of his ideas about deep time or the ancient age of the earth from uh, Darwin. Not all of it, right? Because I don't think Darwin necessarily believed that the earth was millions of years old. Um, but one of Charles Ly- Lyle's quotes from his principles of geology is that all former changes of the organic and inorganic creation are referable to one interrupted succession of physical events governed by the laws now in operation. So again, he's building off Hutton's primary idea that this is how it's always been. It's never changed. Yeah. Yeah. We'll see that with his laws in a minute too. But so basically he's just saying everything all over time, throughout time, it's always the same. Right. Right. And he proposed these four laws of uniformity, the uniformity of law that the laws of nature don't really change, which to me in some way, okay, that kind of makes sense. Because, I mean, God created space and time a certain way. I don't think he's out there going, well, now I'm going to turn physics on its head. (laughs) Just when you think you know it. Right. Which, to be fair, he could have done that with the rainbow, obviously, if he wanted to. Right. But I don't think he did. Right. was all kind of set in place. And I think it's, it's fair, too, in that we are taught. And we believe our God is unchanging. Mm-hmm. You know, he's never changing. He's the same right. as now as he was then. That kind of thing. You see that consistency. So I get it to to some extent in, in that anyway. No, I think you're right. I think God is the unmoved mover. God right. is the one who doesn't change. Not nature. Right. 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 It doesn't mean nature has to mimic that. Right. Uh, and then if he has this idea of the uniformity or- words uniformity of process so there's the, he literally says there's no need to appeal to unknown causes or unique events to explain geological processes because all physical biological and chemical processes have acted the same way throughout the ages i mean that is the most unscientific and unfalsifiable statements i have ever read this is my favorite law because it is the most ridiculous trust the science law I've ever heard. Oh like, oh, this, this has been going on for a long time. But. Trust the science was around long before <laughs> Fauci ever took the podium. Like, <laughs> Charles Lyle had a trademark and patent way before. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. I, that's, that to me is just like, like you said, it's the most unscientific thing, and it seems so narrow-minded, and you can't be narrow-minded in these things. You have to broaden your horizons, your perspective, and he's just like, nope, nope, don't do it. Right. Don't touch it. Don't question it. It's all the same. It's fine. 
Yeah. So okay. don't don't question the science. Just believe me. I have no way to prove what I'm saying. Right. But, you know, we're just going to ignore the anomalies. Okay. It's fine. It's fine. Everything's fine. It's, it's fine. This is fine. This is not fine. It's <laughs> like, okay. When you do repeated trials and experiments, sometimes you will get outliers. Bad scientists ignore outliers. Good right. scientists try to figure out why the outliers exist. Not necessarily incorporate them to the average of their data, but they try and figure out why they happened, if there's an underlying cause to them, if maybe it can lead us to a new hypothesis. The outliers are more interesting than the average of data. Right, right, absolutely. And understanding them brings us to new conclusions. Right. I love what Nana C says. I am the science. You will not question me. I can't do a New Jersey accent. Oh, that's what that was. I liked it. <laughs> uh, yeah. That's a good sum up. Yeah. Nanasi. That was good. Perfect. <laughs> All right. Uh, so his second law is uniformity of rate. This is also known as gradualism. Basically, everything from the mountain ranges to the Great Canyons are a result of small uniform changes. Nothing, nothing we don't know there. And then right. the last one is uniformity of state. This is also known as non-progressivism, which is kind of funny because like in his time, he is a progress. Anyway, um, <laughs> basically that there's no aim or goal of history that we're just, we're molecules hurtling through space to no end. To me, that's like mad depressing. Right. That's so sad. <laughs> it's so sad. I don't want to live my life that way. <laughs> I don't either. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's off. And he, he kind of, that does, that's very un-Darwin. Yeah. Also. And he kind of dropped this one, didn't he? This law. Yeah. <laughs> Over time, he was like, well, maybe actually we do have a point. Okay. Because we talked about Neptune. We talked about Pluto. And then from this takes hold Gaia theory. Are you kidding me? Mother like, Earth, man. Mother Earth, man. <laughs> Can you dig it? Uh, she made a she made a geology joke. <laughs> I I need a drum and a cymbal oh. sound button. I was gonna add one, and then I didn't have time. But we will have one. <laughs> we need to get one. I yes, know. that was perfect. Um, yeah, so, okay, Gaia theory proposes that all living organisms interact with their inorganic surroundings on Earth to form a synergistic and self-regulating self-complex system that helps to maintain and perpetuate the conditions for life on planet, man. Like, uh, uh, it, it started out, it started out as like, uh, so maybe this just kind of happened slowly over time. I mean, God still did it, but maybe he didn't. And now maybe we are all just part of the earth and the great spiritual world, man. And he's probably just back there do hitting a doobie with Charles Darwin or something. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, I like that. That's how he's coming up. I mean, okay. To play devil's advocate for a hot second. I do think there's something to this and it's not something I fully worked out yet for myself yet, but it's like 
we're kind of saying the same thing in a very different way because with God, it is all connected in that he created us, created all of this and it's connected in that way. And we are called to be caretakers of the earth and to, um, respect all of it and, and to be part of it in that kind of context. But then you have this where we are connected with God and the, and the world he created for us. And again, to be caretakers. And then you kind of turn it on its head, which is what you see so often. And it becomes this um, totally different spiritual movement that is similar in that comes from the same basis. Maybe, you know what I'm saying? Right but it's taken to a whole nother plane. And so it's like, it's like, ah, we're saying the same, but we're not. This is why I think it's so convincing to people is because it has just enough kernel of truth that people see something in it. It's like, Oh, this, this rings true to me somehow. I can't quite figure out why, but this rings true to me somehow. And I mean, it is true that we are dependent on the nutrient cycles. Mm-hmm. If we didn't have the hydrologic cycle, we wouldn't have the water that is essential for life. If we didn't have the carbon cycle, we wouldn't have the energy that is essential for life. We wouldn't have our atmosphere. So there's there's so many parts where that is true, but that's not the thing to worship, right? We right. worship the creator, not the created thing. Yep, Exactly. So, yes. And I think that is what draws people in so much because they sense that. They're like, yeah, there's truth in that. Yes, there is, but not. (laughs) Yep. Anyway, tangent on that, which has nothing to do with anything really, but there you go. (laughs) Well, this, I know, it's like, I clicked on this video to hear about Younger Dryas theory, and all I've been hearing about is uniformitarianism. Okay, there's a point. There is a point. I promise there's a point. I just (laughs) wanted to set the stage for you because this is the battle that is going on behind the scenes. So when I present the scientific data for or against Younger Dryas impact theory, know that this is the argument that geologists are in the midst of. You have the establishment uniformitarians who have grown up in the shadow of Werner and Hutton and Lyle and a little bit of Darwin, right? They are living in the shadows of these men. And then you have the catastrophists who are trying to deviate back around, who are trying, I think, a little bit more to look with fresh eyes at the data and not through the lens of these people who are stuck in their ways and not willing to see that maybe they weren't a hundred percent. Right. Agreed. Yeah. It does set the stage and uh, I don't know. I think that there is something to both. uh, Well, we'll talk about that in a minute. To both uniformitarianism and catastrophism. We keep going. Yeah. We set the scene. We set the scene. Now let's talk Younger Dryas. Yes. Let's do it. All right. So just so we have a feel for what, where, how a Younger Dryas may be, approximately 115,000 years ago. Again, take the dates with a grain of salt. I'm just going to use the ones that they give us. Just know that it's all relative. Mm-hmm. Okay. So approximately 100,000 years ago, the Northern Hemisphere ice sheet was beginning to grow. And by 26.5 thousand years ago, it had reached its maximum size. And so the idea is that this ice sheet had spread out from east to west and had connected both 
North America and Europe. Right. And so there's kind of like this land bridge now that made of ice, of course, it's pretty thick ice that people could migrate across, populate the Americas, things like that. Yes. And there's this evidence of a strange event, a massive increase in solar insulation, uh, solar radiation, due to a change in the Earth's orientation or position in space. This is often referred to as the, I'm going to say this wrong because it's probably like a German or Russian name, Milankovitch cycles. Maybe. I think you nailed it. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. So the, it's basically like the procession of the Earth, right? It's rotating just a little bit differently. Now we're getting more solar radiation. So the ice starts to recede just a little bit. And by 12,800 years ago, this anomalous warming period ended. That's, that's a pretty short time. Okay. And so when that happened, after the warming period ended, all of that heat transferred to the ice Lots and lots and lots of ice. And the funny thing about ice, when it's warmed up, it... <laughs> melts! It melts! Weird. Weird! <laughs> and so that kind of like cooled the Earth off because it cooled off the currents. And when we have cooler currents, we have a cooler planet. So after that warming, we get a cooling period again. And so you can kind of see in this temperature graph that I've had on the screen here for a minute, this... <laughs> sort of thing happening. We get our increase in temperature. Geologically speaking, this is a very short time frame for a warming to happen. If you're yeah. taking their perspective of hundreds of thousands of years of geological time. And for it to happen gradually. Right. Anyway. For it, it for us to go from the Pliocene epoch, which was the Great Ice Age, and then all of a sudden the temperature spike they, they, the assumption was that it was because of the Milankovitch cycles, that because of the Earth's procession. Right. And all of this ice melted, cooled down the seas, cooled the currents, and then we get a quick dip of a cooling period, and then the temperature picks back up again. And the reason it's called the Younger Dryas is because it's named after this polar flower, which you can see here. It's like little tiny white flowers with Beautiful. a little yellow center. Almost pink. like a daisy. Yeah. Kind of. For people who are not seeing it right now. Yeah. Kind of, sort of. It, it's called a young, the Younger Dryas period because these uh, Dryas octopella, oh, I had it earlier, octopetala, octo meaning eight, Patella meaning petal. Um, th this flower is a polar flower. So during that warming period, all of these flowers disappeared. And when the cooling of the younger dryas settled in again, they reappeared. And that's how they knew it Beautiful. happened. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I think they're kind of nice. They, they are pretty. They are pretty. So, and we... Use the term younger to distinguish it from the older driest period in which the plant had similarly disappeared during a warming period and then reappeared during the last major glacial period that we just talked about. Right. So. Older, younger, pretty yeah. flowers. Pretty flowers. <laughs> basically. You got it. I nailed it. No. I got you though. The, the difference in temperature is what's crazy because... This temperature change is not, it's not happening gradually. In fact, the temperature is 
changing so much. It is it changed between nine and fourteen degrees Celsius. To put that in perspective, the climate change activists are worried about 1.5 degrees of change. Yeah. Yeah. It was a little more dramatic then. (laughs) It's like (laughs) more than 10 times as much. Yeah. Yeah. But we should spray stuff in the air so that it we don't yeah anyway <laughs> we should use energy directed weapons to make it happen i mean what what uh, what <laughs> no uh, but, but yeah so if we're subscribing to this uniformitarian belief of geology that natural processes happen slowly over time this is an insane and unexplainable change yeah it's huge and this is the first time we see something this as far as we can measure something this dramatic, correct? Correct. Yeah. And, and, and not since the Chicxulub meteor, the one that killed the dinosaurs, have we seen s- even close to such a similar temperature spike. Right. So kind of tuck that in the back of your brain. Because um, this wasn't the only change this crazy temperature thing right the climate didn't slowly warm in less than a few decades (laughs) the temperatures rose by 9 to 14 degrees celsius and there are five major pieces of evidence that clue us into the onsetting of the younger dryas that clue us into this strange period um and i'll go through each of those but just to kind of set the stage we get the dating period for the younger dryas from greenland ice cores and so the ice core dating is a little odd to me. Uh, here is a graph of a, a bunch of numbers. Sense. I know. Just I look kidding. at it. I'm like, yep, yeah, I understood that. Yeah, got it. <laughs> Check. So with the with the ice, is it kind of like when geologists look at layers in the dirt? Yes and no. And I no. mean, it's not dirt. So it's not dirty. It's hard because it's ice. And as we said earlier, ice melts. melts. And <laughs> so basically what they do is this thing called continuous flow analysis. So, and I'm not a geologist. I'm going off my own understanding of what they do. Never done this before. But my understanding is they take a section of the ice core and continuously melt it and then analyze the chemical and microscopic contents of the ice core sample analyzed and they would melt it slowly enough, just like you'd see, like you were saying layers and rock, you would melt it slowly enough so you could distinguish layers based on their chemical composition. Okay. Gotcha. That's my best understanding of it. And that's how they're able to generate graphs like this based on mineral data, radioactive isotopes, science, science, ha, trust it. (laughs) <laughs> right. Sorry. This this is like kind of the hard and frustrating part about trying to research a lot of this stuff on your own is it's so well gatekept. Yes. Yes. It's it's not um easily ex- accessible as far as like you can't just grab an article and read it and be like, "Oh yeah, I got it." Right. I went through so many articles trying to understand what was going on with this younger dryas impact theory. And I was so confused a lot of the time. I, I did finally yeah. think I made a, some sort of sense of it, but 
you basically have to have a thesaurus out going, I don't know what they're saying. Right. This is What's great. This word? What is this? I don't know. Yeah. My, yeah. my, one of my many frustrations with academia is the unnecessary inflation of jargon to discourage the everyday reader from ever picking it up. Right. Right. And, and that's actually, that's like my whole thing with this theory. Like I said in the beginning, I have known about this for a bit and heard about it for a bit, but it was still like, I can't, I can't even, I, I even looked up like Randall Carlson. I was like, does he even have, cause this is, you know, obviously right. I was like, does he just have like a simplified he like, does not. Here it is for dummies. No, he doesn't. He has a whole list of episodes oh, to talk about it. And I was like, well, I don't have a whole year to listen to this. Randall Carlson is such a good resource because he understands this in a way that I simply don't. I understand it at a very surface, I think, basic level. I tried very hard to get into the details, which we will get into. Yeah. But he has, I mean, he went back to college to understand geology i mean he was so obsessed with this theory like he is into it he knows the ins and outs he's read everything that's ever been published so if you're like if this is a good introductory video to you and you're like wow younger dryas theory so fascinating i'm so into it definitely check out his work we're not sponsored by him but if he ever listens to it you know you know who to props dude props (laughs) but but it's seriously yes and you can you can see that and it the fact that he had to go back to school the fact that he has like all these episodes just to talk about this right. one i mean it's wonderful and i think it, it's wonderful to have such an extensive knowledge of it right but again it's not something that's accessible to somebody who's like oh i heard of this wonder what it is and then you're just like <laughs> never mind so just so tackle it for us it so no 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 but you under, did yeah, yeah. you did and i'm not ta- no no i appreciate that you did like if anybody I'm just wants, trying to encourage everybody who's listening who's like what the hell have I gotten myself into it will make sense I'm it sorry will. I keep I interrupting no no you're totally fine um so yeah set the stage looking at Greenland Iceland co- Greenland ice I keep wanting to say Greenland Iceland Greenland ice course yeah um that's how they get the dating okay yes. so the first major event I will mention is the forming of the glacial lake uh, here's another weird name, Agassiz. Yep, sure. Sure. In North America. And this is considered to be one of the largest North American pro-glacial lakes. Uh, I'm guessing pro here means like, le- like you'd think of prototype. Mm. Type of pro. Uh, yeah. That formed on the continent. And it didn't cover all it, uh, I guess I should show you a picture of it so you get what I'm talking about. Um Pictures are good. Pictures. So this is it. It's huge. Covers quite a bit of Canada, uh, quite a bit of the most northern states. Doesn't quite get to Michigan. Looks like we got Minnesota, North Dakota, and then like America's hat. Um, But it didn't actually cover all of this landmass at one time. They've just analyzed the the areas outlined Mm. in this area. What am I trying to say? They've analyzed the Red River Valley and found basically boundary lines that they would consider make up this ancient lake. 
of course it doesn't exist now otherwise people couldn't live there but <laughs> evidence for this glacial lake is found in the st stratigraphy right the yeah. layers in the rock of the red river valley it's border shoreline fe features and the flat topography so the stratigraphy of the sediments of the red river valley i think is the most compelling because it implies and you can kind of see like the striations here along the Red River Valley in this particular image. And this is very, um, it's like a fingerprint of something you would see of an area that had been previously occupied by ancient lakes and glaciers. Mm -hmm. They left their mark. Yeah. Yeah. We were uh, here. They were here. <laughs> the, uh, they... In the research article I had picked up for this one, there are these light detecting and ranging, also called LIDAR images. It's a remote sensing method used to examine the Earth's deep surface. Um, so they get these striations. Again, it looks like something might have scraped along it and sediments kind of layered up on it, like you would imagine a shoreline. Mm -hmm. And so that was their reasoning behind why this lake existed uh, these particular images were taken in north dakota the fluctuations in lake agassiz during this time are a helpful clue into the younger dryas because if we get this giant warming period before the younger dryas and this was previously a frozen lake right what do you think happened it melted it melted <laughs> It melted. That's a lot of water to melt. That's a lot of water. And would that be like glacial movement then? Yeah. So the, the glaciers themselves retreated and then the lake itself just like catastrophically overflowed. Yeah. Yeah. Just like so aggressively. Right. Can't handle all this water out of nowhere. <laughs> like what Nancy says, it's a giant flamethrower. <laughs> I like it. Yes. It does feel like that. But, again, many geologists believe that this catastrophic overflowing was just, you know, the tilting of the earth. You know, no big deal. But... This is big because that cool glacial fresh water is flooding into other local rivers like the St. Lawrence River and into the northern Atlantic Ocean. Yeah. And, you know, there's this crazy thing for animals called a range of tolerance. And like aquatic life is good between a certain pH and a certain temperature range. Right. And when changes suddenly happen, they're like, you know what? I think I'm just going to die. <laughs> I don't want to do this anymore. <laughs> Bye. I'm out. <laughs> that makes I sense. I think to me, it's more extreme to believe that just the random tilting of the earth caused this to suddenly happen. Well, yeah. Okay. <sighs> Uniformitarianism. So random tilting of the earth. How often does that happen? <laughs> right. And... Just willy-nilly because it wants to. I mean, maybe I'm misunderstanding. Maybe I'm not understanding. But, like, it just decided, like, you know what? I'm usually like this. I'm going to do this for a little bit. 
I mean, it feels like that. Does It's a very convenient out for them. They say it happens in cycles, the Milankovitch cycles. Yes. But could I oh, find yeah. a time scale for those cycles? No. Mm. Could I find any regularity for those cycles? No. So it feels like it, it goes back to what Charles Lyle was saying earlier. Well, we don't need to explain things that are weird, basically. Right. Don't question it. It's all the same anyway. It's fine. Just follow the science. <laughs> Trust it. It's fine. Okay. So <sighs> yes. Lake of Gases is one piece of the puzzle. Yes. Another piece of the puzzle is the flooding of the Mackenzie River. And so, again, we get a similar sort of thing. That's a lighter. Okay, here we go. Here's the Mackenzie River. Again, this is in North America. This is basically giving Canada a nice big hug surrounding the Laurentide Ice Sheet, which is the big North American ice sheet that's connecting to the Greenland Ice Sheet. Uh, and 2010, geographer Julian Merton found evidence of massive flooding along the Mackenzie River and that it was caused, you guessed it, by the overflow of Lake Agassiz. Gotcha. From stuff melting. From stuff melting. Right. And he knew this because there was a massive deposit on the Arctic sea floor of sediment that was found in Lake Agassiz. Gotcha. So, I mean, if I can chemically determine the sediment of Lake Agassiz, connect it to the sediment of the Mackenzie River, you would logically think, okay, the overflow of this caused the flooding here. Yeah. Moved in that, this moved into that kind of. Right. And so in 2013, researchers retrieved sediment cores, again, think of those layers, and used a chirp sonar to measure the deposited layers in the Arctic Ocean, which uh, that's a pretty big undertaking to measure things in the Arctic Ocean, because, I mean, we saw what happened with the last time people went down in a submarine. Not great. Um, Not good. <laughs> Obviously, <laughs> these people were probably better prepared and they used sonar instead of going down themselves. But they found larger sediment particles than other layers in the Mackenzie River and the sudden changes in five other sediment profiles. Their carbon dating suggested that the layers accumulated fast. Gotcha. So this is not the slow-moving waters of uniformitarianism. Right. This is big, mad flooding. Yeah. This is something, dare we say it, catastrophic. What? Oh, I said it. I said you. it. She I know. said it. That just, happened. Just for comparison, the <laughs> layers that predate this period occur at a rate of 0.5 meters per thousand years. During this particular period, there was a buildup of 12 meters per thousand years. I can't even begin to convey what a huge difference that is. It's huge. Even I know that, you guys. Even I get it. <laughs> That's a big jump. Wow. In geologic time, that is insanely fast. Yeah. Holy cow. Crazy. Okay. Crazy. So we've got our two pieces so far, Lake Agassiz, 
the Mackenzie River. Number three are the three great major ice sheets because right. uh, we already talked about the Laurentide ice sheet, the one in the Northern Hemisphere. There's the Greenland ice sheet that's connected to that. And then the one over Europe, the Fennoscandian ice sheets. And each one of these simultaneously began to change. Yeah. At, so at the same time, which maybe that's uniformitarianism. I'm sorry. I'm just going to be snarky about this the whole time. <laughs> but, but you would think, so that leads you to think that one thing caused it for everybody. Right. Anyway. It all it all happened in the Northern Hemisphere, at least. Like, right. It's, it's just a Northern Hemisphere thing. It's just a Northern Hemisphere thing. The, right. Those cool kids. They're special. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so <laughs> frozen. <laughs> well, except they weren't they because weren't. each of these ice sheets experienced major reduction during the that weird unexplained warming period before the younger dryas. Um just right. to just to give you some context. Uh here here is where some samples were taken uh, along the Baltic Lake. So the Laurentide ice sheet. Uh I don't think that's the right image. Here we go. Okay. So we have the outline of each of the ice sheets, the predicted outlines. And the stuff you see in orange is where the ice sheet should have extended to. The white is where it melted to. Okay. That, I don't, I think the picture is deceptive and that it looks like, oh, well, it only melted a little bit. Right. You, we, you have to realize we're talking about these enormous masses of ice, like insanely huge. That is an insane amount of ice to just suddenly dump into the ocean. Right, 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 right. That's, um, so the first picture, right. Is that Greenland? Yeah, I I think that is, I think that is Greenland. Uh, which is the majority of it. Right. You imagine just dumping a chunk of, an ice chunk the size of Greenland. And that alone, but there was three of them. Right. Into yeah. Into your uh, water. Might make it a little a little chilly. Right. So in in this first one, the this basically shows us I mean, it it's so much. I, I can't even like wrap my head around how much ice is being dumped into the ocean and it's not ice anymore it's cold right, water right. just c- freezing cold water it, that's <laughs> in a climate that had suddenly gotten very warm yeah that is going to do a lot to the ocean currents right so you're going from pretty much tropical to arctic ish yeah, basically yeah i mean just think about do you know about the El Nino, La Nina, the Southern Oscillation yes. cycle? So we're in the middle of a El Nino event, and we're seeing the effects of that right now with the Hurricane Lee hurtling towards us at 180. Right. I don't remember Woo. if it's miles or kilometers, but yeah. it's fast. It's fast. Um, coming in hot. <laughs> yeah. That hurricane is coming in real hot. Um <laughs> And that's just from an actually natural cycle that we've tracked the changes of. We understand, I'll say relatively well, not fairly well, because what do we know about anything really? (laughs) But we see how intense a change like that is in our our recent history. Now imagine 
something that insanely cold being dumped into a warm ocean? Mm, nope. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, so ignoring whatever catastrophic, not, I didn't say catastrophic, no. whatever uniformitarian natural event caused yes. that warming period that then led to the Younger Dryas, imagine all of the weather events that happened after that. Yes, because you don't just get, oh, it's chilly. (laughs) There's so many more repercussions. So uh, hurricanes, tsunamis, things like that, I'm assuming. Yeah. Yeah, a little bit. And now you've added more liquid water to the hydrologic cycle. So now you've got insane amounts of rain and storms. Yeah. Wonder if there's another time in history in which it rained for many days and many (laughs) nights. But we're not supposed to listen to that. Anyway, moving on. The fourth connection. About three-fourths of the megafauna in North America just disappeared at this time. Megafauna being. Yeah, so megafauna are like your... Your woolly mammoths, your saber-toothed tigers, uh, your giant tortoises, and yes, direwolves. Those existed. Yay! Those aren't just in Game of Thrones. Yay! I was waiting for that one. It's my favorite. <laughs> Mine too. I mean, I wouldn't want to meet one. No. No. But that's pretty cool. You know, at a distance from a history book or something. From a history totally book. Totally cool. That, that's from my Game of Thrones, kind. that's cool too. Right. In real life? Not so much. I'm cool. I'm cool. <laughs> Okay, so I just want to, like, pause here because the uniformitarian accepted belief is that humans, hunter-gatherer tribes, hunted all of these creatures to extinction. Hunted out the woolly mammoth, the saber-toothed tiger, freaking dire wolves. They're ballsy. First of all, if you're a hunter-gatherer sort of civilization, you know better, better, you know better than to hunt your prey to extinction because then they can't reproduce. Even if you're not thinking about it like that, I mean, we have hunter-gatherer tribes now. If you go to Africa, right? They know better than to hunt their prey to extinction. Yeah. So why? On Earth, would you think that they hunted them to extinction only to extinct themselves? Right. Yes. And why take the risk for something? I can't. I mean, woolly mammoths, maybe because of the meat and the all that you could do with that ginormous beast. But like a saber-toothed tiger or a dire wolf, unless you're protecting yourself or you're, right. you know, if they're coming at you. Why would you keep pursuing these things, which are, I can only imagine, extremely dangerous. I don't care how good of a hunter you are. I don't know. Just my theory there. I I like what Nanacy says. That theory smells off to me. Me too, Nanacy. Me too. Yeah. Don't don't like it. Doesn't Mm -mm. feel right. Um, Not to mention the fact that these massive extinctions are not known to have occurred through any other means save through a catastrophic event. Uh, 
just to illustrate how anomalous this was, uh, let's think about the horse for a second. Uh, in the Western Hemisphere, horses and their ancestors had survived as an unbroken evolutionary lineage, if, if you believe, believe in macroevolution, for approximately 56 million years since the beginning of the Eocene epoch. Yet abruptly, at or near the onset of the Younger Dryas, every horse species outside of Eurasia became extinct. Gone. Just gone. Like, what purpose would any hunter-gatherer tribes have in getting rid of horses? Right. At this point in history, they're already using horses for manual labor. Yes. You wouldn't. That would just be foolish. And I don't think right. as as much as they want to say, like, oh, they were hunter-gatherers and not as intelligent, not as smart. It's like, okay. That's not fair. <laughs> and at least, and I'm sure, like, I don't believe that that junk anyway, but I'm sure they were really smart enough not to get rid of a useful tool for no reason. Right. So, ah. There's some very interesting geological evidence um, at the onset of the Younger Dryas boundary that is seen pretty uniformly in the sedimentary layers, and that's called the black mat. Have you heard of the black mat before? I've heard the term, but I can't tell you much of anything about it. So here's a picture of it. Uh, for those of you just listening, it's like you have these layers of rock, and then just all of a sudden, this like unexplainable black line in the rock. Yeah. It's weird. Okay. It is weird. And so the idea is that this black matte layer is composed of or organic material, like very high organic composition. So like great compost. Yeah. Really great <laughs> compost. <laughs> hmm. It's weird because before the black matte layer, you get... Uh, the fossils and bones of your woolly mammoths, your dire wolves, your giant sloths, all that. After the black matte layer, you never see them again. Gotcha. It's a very fine line. Literally. <laughs> Literally. <laughs> Between them and the, uh, yeah. <laughs> you know, I gotta be cheesy when I can. But okay. Uh, yeah. Anything is anything uh, in that anything we don't have today seen after that black mat? Does that make sense? Besides um, the megafauna, no, not really. Yeah. the The last piece that I'll mention is the evidence of the Clovis people. So these are the um, hunter gatherer tribes that were said to be the most prominent in North America, and they were called the Clovis people because of these. Uh, arrowheads they made they're very distinct but they are found all over North America in the geological layers beneath the black mat line exactly and so and they're defined after. by that and not after it's only there not not commonly after anyway like right. they're found in like I read one article that was like you just pick up a layer of rock and it's just filled with these arrowheads, right? 
because they were so, it was so much a part of their culture. They were so prominently used. And then after that line, it's like, if you found one, it was like, whoa. Yeah. You found one. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. Crazy. I do know that with, sorry. Yeah, you're good. Just with the Clovis people, not to, I have to go into all of that, but I do know with them, like, their DNA was matched with your um, Asian mm. settlers. So the whole land bridge thing that you were talking about yeah, makes sense. And it makes sense with their um, the, their DNA, at least what was found with the Clovis people. I'm not saying all of the Native Americans, but with them, it was like, oh, no, they're definitely more Asian in their DNA. So them coming over that land bridge ah. with the ice. Yeah. That makes sense. Mm-hmm. Another little piece of the puzzle. Yes. Mm-hmm. It's also interesting. So we have these five pieces that clue us into the Younger Dryas period. We have Lake Agassiz, the Mackenzie River. Um, we have the disappearance of the megafauna. We have the receding of the three major ice sheets. And of course, the disappearance of the Clovis people. Mm-hmm. And no one and archaeology can agree as to why the Younger Dryas happened. They, all they know for certain, as far as they're concerned, is that the Younger Dryas is a rapid cooling period that followed a sudden warming period at the end of the Great Ice Age, and that it was likely that the warming period that preceded the Younger Dryas was caused by that weird procession of the Earth. Right. Right. But right. They, they have no real evidence to suggest that. And I think many archaeologists are asking themselves the wrong question. They're asking, oh, well, why did the Younger Dryas happen? I think it's pretty clear that the Younger Dryas happened because the warming warming. happened. Yes. So the real question should be, what caused the warming? Why did we suddenly warm up? Cows. Yeah, the the Clovis raised megafauna cows that farted so much methane into the atmosphere, and Al Gore hadn't been born yet to hug up the cows' booty holes. And here we are. And here we are. That was that is the lesson. You're welcome. Congratulations. The, the episode's over. We made it. <laughs> okay, At least I figured sorry. it out. No, that was amazing. <laughs> But you're right. No, nobody's really asking that question. Why did this even, why did it warm up? Right. Yeah. And all five of these proofs we just went through happened at or close to the onset of the Younger Dryas. And again, remember, we're talking geologically speaking. Could it be possible that each of these events shared a single trigger, the receding of the ice sheets, the loss of the megafauna, the flooding of Lake Agassiz, the disappearance of the Clovis people? What if these events are not just proofs of the cooling period that followed, but of a catastrophic event that ultimately led to the Younger Dryas? And so in 2007, Richard Firestone and his associates at Lawrence Berkeley National Laboratory proposed that perhaps an extraterrestrial impact event occurred at 12,900 years ago, leading to the abrupt warming period and then the subsequent Younger Dryas. The fact that he ever proposed that literally shook 
the geological community. They were shook. <laughs> Mo shook up. Mm-hmm. The, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Because how dare he, first of all, ever suggest that anything could happen besides uniformitarianism, besides something natural and explainable. Crazy, crazy kids and their ideas. <laughs> he was, yeah, Richard Firestone, crazy kid, trademark. Yeah. Because the younger Dryas, like, obviously, we've known about this period for a long mm-hmm. time. But this idea of the impact theory, the impact right. theory is relatively new in terms mm. of science. History. It's hugely new. I mean, yeah. it's a, 2007, that's hugely new for geological sciences when they hadn't updated their textbooks since like the 19th century. <laughs> exactly. Big news. It's yeah. still big news to them. They still just like, and I get why they're afraid of it because it really shakes up their core belief. It shakes up their closely held faith. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like you said, this was, when he brought this up, it was so, you know, no. Well, you can't reproduce it. You can't reproduce it. But they have since then. Yeah. At least in small, from what I found in small independent studies. Yeah. I don't know. Anyway, yeah. So quick to, like, dismiss this. Right. And to me, it's crazy. Because if you were to believe in uniformitarianism, you have to explain how all of these events could happen simultaneously. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Are you ready for my tangent? I am so ready for your tangent. Okay. Here's my tangent. So, uniformitarianism. How far... Do you take this to what, what, where are the boundaries with this? So if it's uniform and maybe I'm taking this way too literally, which is totally possible. Does it stop in stratosphere? The atmosphere does, how big right. are we going? And then if it's all, I, I would almost say like cyclical, right? Kind of. I mean, if it's all gradual changes throughout, it doesn't have to be cyclical. But still, if the Earth just tilted, for example, like eh, eh, coming back, you would think that would be a uniform thing that we can expect every so often. It's an extreme. And I also think catastrophism is an extreme as well. It could potentially, and hear me out, it could potentially be like a, deus ex machina kind of thing like Mm. we don't know so we'll just plug this in i'm not saying that's what's happening here but i am saying that i think both can be used to extremes and i think it's somewhere in the middle ish like you do see uniformity in a lot of things like if you look at a plant and how you put the seed and the roots plant comes up it's all pretty uniform if anything goes There are outliers and there are things that can affect it. Bad soil, not enough water, all that jazz. But in general, you can expect the same 
uniform kind of growth in good conditions. That's also not real life. Right. <laughs> Otherwise, crops would just be boom, easy. Right. And then same with catastrophism. Again, like I said, you can kind of plug it into holes if you wanted to. But you see that in real life too. You see things that kind of just come in and shake things up and you're like, oh, uh, that came out of nowhere. Don't know what seems random to us. I think it's a detriment to us when we take these two extremes and keep them at polar opposites. Like this can't touch this. And so it's either this or this. When it's like, if we just, man, I'm such a middle of the road person and I hate that sometimes. If we could just balance the two things and like accept that both are true. Right. Maybe we'd be able to understand more. I think this is so important though, because you're trying to pull out the things that are true out of both. Right. Because like you said, I don't necessarily think you can just deus ex machina and say it's a comment that it's aliens, you know, that it's the right. solar flares that, you know, whatever you want to plug into it. Yeah. Um, every Shove in whatever you want. Yeah. You also can't say, oh, I don't really understand it, but something probably happened and it was probably something very natural and I just don't know what it is yet. Right. Neither one of those answers feels sufficient. Right. Right. And they, both sides stand for them with such dogmatic vigor. It makes it hard to believe either one. Yes. Yes. That's the thing is it's like you both are speaking the truth ish. You both have good points. You both have things. And um, it's very frustrating to keep them so yeah. distant when they could actually benefit each other. I think. I'm sorry. Can we just take a time out? Yes. Uh, Frida, recognize the thing that we said. Literally, I pointed it out before we got on stream. And I was like, so I'm not going to say anything about it. But, but Frida will. But Frida will. I knew she it. would. Okay, so for those of you who are listening and aren't part of our live chat right now, oh, sorry, we are having a Bible stream Monday. <sighs> and for if you're keeping up with our Genesis streams, we did the Garden of Eden and all of that. Then we did Noah's flood. So of course, next up is the Tower of Babel on Monday, which is nine eleven. <laughs> not we didn't plan it. I swear, not intentional. And then actually just recognized it today before we started streaming and she mentioned it to me and I'm just like, oh my gosh, that, that we couldn't, we couldn't have timed that. No, that if we wanted a God to. Thing. Yeah. And then we're like, maybe if we don't say anything, nobody will notice. And we're both really, now nah, Frida will notice. And she's <laughs> right in the comments. She's like, of course <laughs> y'all be talking about tower, a tower on 9-11. Oh my gosh. Swim hook too soon. Babel rose rough. <laughs> I know. Uh, this episode is totally derailed. It, oh, it was. And I I couldn't like hold it in anymore. I'm sorry. <laughs> Nancy God has a wicked sense of humor. He does. I agree. Guys. He does. I agree. Oh, man. Uh, so tune in Monday. Yeah. There's our, <laughs> our blip for Monday. <laughs> Thanks, Frida. That was amazing. 
Okay. <laughs> okay. Anyway, where were we? So, Who are we? I don't know. <laughs> I don't even know. Um, why do they think that it was a comment? Uh, right. <laughs> I'm sorry. The oh, PJ. Now PJ's in the comments saying Bush did the Tower of Babel. The planes weren't holograms, PJ. <laughs> Babel wasn't an inside job. All right, I quit. Oh, that was good. Okay. Perfect timing, senior. <laughs> why? Yes, why okay. did they believe it was the comment? Okay, right. so we have some evidence that we can compare to things that the geological community already believes in a catastrophic comet, right? They believe that the Chicxulub comet hit the Yucatan Peninsula and killed uh, that that was a mass extinction event, right? It killed out all the dinosaurs, 75% of all life on earth. We were never going to recover. Right. So on and so forth. Right. So they have, air quotes, pieces of evidence that they tie to that comet. And interestingly enough, we have similar pieces of evidence in the area surrounding that part of North America. So the first piece is abundance of rare metals like iridium at geological boundaries. Um, and so this guy, Walter Alvarez, he was the one who prop proposed the Chicxulub Comet. And he, he was the one who first found these radioactive minerals and rocks. And like we just said, this theory is widely accepted. Yes. And these same minerals are found at elevated concentrations in bulk and in these magnetic sediments in that black mat line. That to me is like the craziest part. Yeah. Out of all of it. Like, so here's an image of, I know no one's going to understand this. I, I barely understand it myself, but it's basically this graph of these different ages and the abundance of different minerals is my understanding of the graph anyway. Yeah. Uh, in, in these different sedimentary layers. Periods, and yeah. so in the younger Dryas, they see a platinum spike. Iridium is part of the platinum group on the periodic table. Other elements that belong in that group are things like rhodium, ruthenium, osmium, palladium, right? Elements. Uh, so they're really, they're radioactive. So they're really good indicators of sp space objects because those types of minerals are not abundantly found on Earth. To find them in any sort of abundance in rock is really good indication that it came from space. Gotcha. So, yeah. yeah. Well, you just said it. Doesn't we can't find it? We can't really find it here, but right. we do find it in space. Comes from meteorites, comets, things like that. Not to group them all together because I know they're different. I'm just. It's hard because, like, in my mind, I get them confused. I'm like, okay, it's a yeah. comet. Well, it's going through the sky. It's a meteor when it's coming towards Earth, and it's a meteorite when it actually hits the Earth. I think I have that right. Maybe. Sounds good to me. Yeah. yeah. That's what we're going with. Yep. Um, so so that's just like one piece of evidence. I think that's pretty solid. Yeah. Uh, another piece of evidence. These are really cool. These microspherules found in rocks. Yeah. Look at this rock. I wanted to see this. Sweet. It's so interesting. So for those of you who are just listening, this rock kind of looks like it's covered in pepper. 
It's like, you know, when you like op- you go to pepper your eggs in the morning and you accidentally open the side of the pepper where it's like <laughs> all of it instead of just the sprinkle side. Yes. And it's like, <laughs> whoops. Yeah. Yes, I'm eating pepper for breakfast. <laughs> I didn't want to taste that. Egg, anyway. Oh, taste that egg. <laughs> I didn't want to taste the egg. Just the pepper. I, I don't want to taste the rock either. No. But these spherules are interesting because uh, they're created when asteroids <clears throat> crash into the Earth and the rock is vaporized. Uh, and this, they form these droplets of molten rock in the plume of vaporization. And as they f- fall back to the surface, they cool back down and form this thin layer of rock that just has these condensed and solidified droplet plumes inside. Love them. it. So this, yeah. Nana C said it looks like it's covered in glitter. And I'm like, oh. yes. And I can just, now that's what I'm imagining is like the glitter coming down. Yeah, I like that. Yeah, I do too. It's pretty. And a fun visual. Anyway. Yeah, I like the glitter analogy better than the pepper analogy. Both um, but this is another widely accepted marker of an extraterrestrial event. Yes. Um, there is an added layer of difficulty here because this can happen in aqueous environments too when there's like physical compactions or chemical precipitation. Uh, think about when those underwater vents release a lot of molten rock into the ocean. So different processes can take place there. The actual key difference is the chemical analysis of the minerals themselves. Again, we talked about rare minerals being found in space rock and then your standard earth minerals being found in earth rock. That is a big clue into it. We can also use techniques like scanning electron microscopy, SEM, or X-ray fluorescence um, to sort of look for this. Gotcha. The glassy spherules are examples of naturally occurring microspherules. Uh, Richard Firestone, who came up with this whole theory of the Younger Dryas impact, he and his team investigated the possibility that the microspherules they discovered were terrestrial. So he thought, nah, actually, you know what? There's no way this actually came from space. And so they investigated everywhere across the Younger Dryas Berry. I'm talking different environments, different soil conditions, climates, biomes. Like, they looked at it all. Um, which, kudos, sir. Yes, kudos. This is good science. This is not, oh, okay, I'm going to take one isolated variable and say, cool, that proves my point. No, yeah, he, he did the good work. Mm-hmm. He went and looked in every nook and cranny. But yes, basically. Yeah. And here's the thing. <clears throat> He looked everywhere, and the rocks that he found at the Younger Dryas Boundary were uniform. Everywhere. Everywhere. We're talking all across North America, in the bound- within the boundary. That's right. Yes, of the Younger Dryas. They were all the same. That is insane. Again, to believe in uniformitarianism here, right. over such a wide area, over Different biomes, different environments. I'm talking from arid region stream beds to lakes, ponds, glacial moraines. He looked everywhere. Logically speaking, based on their own theory of uniformitarianism, the different environment would form a different time of spherule. But to get the same uniformly across these different regions, 
unreal. Yeah. That doesn't happen. It doesn't. No. So the sparkle glitter hit everything in that. (laughs) It's huge. It it is literally huge because I, I, I just can't like even put into words how big this is because this just doesn't happen. Um, not to mention, and this is what gets me, is that these microspherules are fairly abundant just below the Younger Dryas boundary, but above it, none. Nothing. Nothing. Yeah. Which is very telling. Obviously, this happened at a specific time all across at the same time, and we've never, I don't, you don't see that. You don't right. find that often. So here are just, uh, here's a table of some of the different sites that he went to. Uh, and this isn't extensive by any means. This is just some of them. So he went to a place called Blackwater Draw. That's actually at the Texas border. So just to tell you how far he went. Yeah. He went crazy everywhere. Uh, so all of these different places and the numbers are microspherules per kilogram. So you're getting tons and tons and almost uniformly they are found in the black mat layer. Nice. Nice. Not to say there aren't exceptions because there are two at least in this chart, but I mean, that's pretty crazy. Yeah, absolutely. So that's piece number two. So we've got the abundant, Rare earth metals, we've got the microspherules. The next one, which is one of my favorites, is the nano diamonds. Nano diamonds are so interesting. They're not pretty diamonds like you get on an engagement ring. This is a picture of them. They're not refined, obviously, uh, but they're extremely small. Mm-hmm. Like the picture I have here are of these yellowish diamonds, they're 0.5 millimeters. It's itty bitty. It is itty bitty. I don't even know how he found these. Really. That's what I was just going to ask. It's like, how do you even find them? It's not like you can Anything. pan for this right. because the pores <laughs> of your pan would too be big. too big to get these. And then if you made them too small, no dirt would go through. <laughs> so it's like, well, yeah. my yeah. guess, because I, I didn't look too much into how he actually found the diamonds is that they would take samples of the black matte layer and then just you know rub them out chemically analyze them be very careful and very cautious with the samples they took Um, because as you might guess not only were they found at the boundary of the Chicxulub impact they were also found abundantly at the younger driest boundary Uh and in the black matte in the black yeah yeah so again this is another piece that is very consistent with other impact sites large reported deposits of both microspherules and nano diamonds from great impacts and the nano diamonds aren't really found anywhere else except at great impact sites crazy 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 that's pretty awesome you're not going to just go mining for these nano diamonds. Right. Um, I'm trying to remember what this image is. It's too tiny. <clears throat> it's too tiny. 
Swim hook asks, how many carrots? And then he goes, obviously much less than one. Obviously much less than one. <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah, so there's just so much corroborative evidence that is similar to the Chicxulub meteor. Here's another one that's called shocked quartz. Um, so shocked oh, yeah. minerals are created in extreme temperature and pressures. And again, these are another thing that have only been found near impact sites. And while these haven't strictly been corroborated with the Younger Dryas boundary yet, some researchers, researchers have found these. Uh, these are planar deformed features of fragmented fine grain quartz. And these are found, again, in the black matte layer. This is a newer line of inquiry, the shocked quartz. So not a lot. Uh, again, yeah, not a lot yet. Yeah. But just know that it's out there. <laughs> They're digging into it. And I'm interested to see what they find. <laughs> digging. <laughs> but, but yeah, I mean, and again, they don't have a lot. This is still, in scientific terms, a relatively new theory. So the fact that they don't have all the answers yet is like, right. Makes sense. That's a lot of work in all these years, all these years uh, in this short right. time. Well, for uh, Richard Firestone, it's basically yeah. like his whole career, right? That yeah. he's been studying this, but relatively speaking, yeah, it's not that much time to, especially not in science. Right. Right. Exactly. But for him to have found so mm -hmm. much yeah. in the last, I can't math. 16 years. 20. Yeah, less than 20 years. Round um, down. <laughs> yeah, it, that's big. So we have a lot of corroborating evidence. So just to have a final uh, comparison chart, I know there's been so much data tonight. Everyone's like, stop showing me graphs. No. <laughs> Here mm -hmm. is basically a compilation of data. So here in the first graph, we have magnetic grains of iridium. You see the one spike in the Younger Dryas boundary. The second one, uh, we're looking at magnetic microspherules. You get a prominent spike in the Younger Dryas boundary. You get charcoal residue, again, prominent spike. I mean, I could go through it. So yeah. carbon spherules, glass-like carbon containing nanodiamonds, fullerenes. I mean, okay, just as an aside, fullerenes are really interesting because they're an, uh, uh, here, here's my chemistry nerd coming out. Yay. Fullerenes are an allotrope of carbon, and they consist of carbon atoms that are connected by single and double bonds to form like these they're balls. They're often referred to as buckyballs. Uh, uh, and the, <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> Go figure. Uh, and they're, they're fused, and they can only be fused under certain conditions. So they've actually been found at the Sudbury Impact Crater. So another crater. Yeah. And have been correlated to uh, the Cretaceous boundary. So. Mm-hmm. Where'd that name come from? Not that that's important at all. I'm just Which one? Bucky. Oh, the Bucky Balls? I, yeah. I learned that in college a long time ago, and now I've forgotten. Again, it's random. Doesn't matter. It, it looks like a soccer ball, basically. Gotcha. Yeah. Uh, somebody in the chat did ask, so Lake Hind, the, a few slides ago, said, it mm. said that they didn't find any... Um, Why none in Lake Hind? I mean, that's a yeah. good question. Uh, I think that it's just him honestly reporting. He didn't find any there. Huh. All right. I mean, hey, is my awesome. Best guess. Yeah. 
to thanks for being honest right it's like he first of all he's not falsifying data he's honestly reporting Mm -hmm. and while it feels pretty uniform nature would like natural nature right would suggest that it's not going to happen Uh, even if this is a uniform event you're not going to find strong deposits everywhere you sample so it could be not to make excuses for him because maybe there truly is nothing to be found at Lycine. Yeah, who knows? Yeah. It could be sampling method. Yeah. It could be where he sampled. It could be how deep, you know, all, all of the things. But, I mean, that's a great question. I would love to know the answer to that. Yeah. Good question, chat. I liked it. And now I have to... Hold on. Never mind. Just googling the Buckyballs. Yep, the Buckminster <laughs> Fuller. I get it now. Oh, okay. The architect in the dome and the got it. Got it. I'm up to I'm up to speed. Awesome. I should have pulled a picture of them because they're cool. Oh, like but so here's the thing: we've had all this evidence pile up. Is it exhaustive? Is it a hundred percent? Like, yes, I believe that the Clovis comet hit North America and warmed up the planet. And that's what caused the younger dry ass. I don't know. I don't, again, it's a theory. It's a theory. Yeah. And here's the thing that is frustrating because in the geological community, there is this overwhelming demand for extraordinary evidence. Thomas Jefferson once said to Pierre Simon Laplace, the French polymathematician, the weight of evidence for an extraordinary claim must be proportioned to its strangeness. And from this, scientists have developed the amorphism, extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. Thanks a lot, Carl Sagan. Um, And this is now called the Sagan standard. But is extraordinary not a subjective qualifier? Definitely. Who defines what's extraordinary? Right. The narrative. Right. Because in my mind, uniformitarianism would be an extraordinary event that requires extraordinary evidence. Agreed. Yes. <clears throat> and it is subjective. And so mm, if it's, if it, so if it questions things too much, does that, does that then become extraordinary and needing extraordinary? <sighs> I don't know. Yeah. Right. Because, like, to me, to believe that something on our planet could be so undisturbed and then you get these spontaneous events that just happen in rapid succession because nature, Nature. because Mother Gaia said so. We were out of whack and she had to bring us back into Mm, alignment. That feels very religious for some reason. Yeah, weird. (laughs) It is weird. And I get that one of the big problems that people struggle with with the Clovis comment is that there's no crater. Right. To be fair, there's no real crater for the Chicxulub yes! meteor. Yes. That's what I was going to say, too. Let's be fair. Let's be fair. Okay. You, you guys see this image often, this depiction of, like, these ranges, like a crater-like impact. Uh, in what would have been the Yucatan Peninsula. Mm -hmm. This doesn't actually exist. This is an artistic rendering. Yes. All right. Yes. That 
if we believe the geological time scale, this happened millions of years ago. It has since been buried up so much. The only evidence they have of it is from radar measurements using NASA equipment. Extremely trustworthy. So trustworthy, much science, much trust. But what gets me is, okay, so we can accept that one, which is obviously not uniformitarianism, obviously catastrophism. That one's totally fine. The Clovis impact theory is like, mm, no, right, not going to do it. (sighs) And And, the question is why? And I think... Even more so now, it's not, yeah. And I think even more so now, the thing is, it wasn't like the comet, but bits from the comet. You know, it wasn't like one big comet dropped on. But now it's more like, oh no, it was bits that fell. And whatever, whatever, it doesn't. Right. Yeah. It's like actually, maybe it was airbursts that happened, which, I mean, we talked about the Chelebinsk, Telebinsk. Chelebinsky. The meteor in Russia. Right. That one was recent. Yes. That was, let's see, 2013. Chelyabinsk. Yeah. Russia. Just after, just after Valentine's Day. Do you still have the video of it? I do. You want to watch it? Yes, I do. (laughs) Okay. I, to warn everybody, because I don't think I did last time and I apologize. Um, It's like a bunch of different videos put together and so sometimes the sound is um you know really loud and sometimes it's not so just just a heads up you'll hear it i promise the once we get past the map there she is All the car cam footage. Right, that's the only reason we have so much good footage of it because apparently, like, there's a lot of insurance fraud in Russia. Yeah. So everyone has a dash cam. Dash cam. The sun is setting, is what it kind of looks like right in your face, and then boom. Maybe. No, not with that one. Here it comes again. Just look at how bright it is. Yeah. I wonder if we'll get to see any, like, damage. (sighs) We do eventually. Come on. I mean, okay, maybe this wasn't... I think this was part of the video I showed. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's it. (sighs) Sorry. No, you're totally fine. Technology, man. Technology, am I right? Yeah, of course. Of course. Of course. <laughs> Last time this happened to me. Oh, yeah. The <laughs> I couldn't have been more mortified. Uh, I think that was our second episode, yeah. too. Yep. Yep. And I was like, I quit. I'm done. I'm that was my favorite. Anymore. It was <laughs> terrible. And I'll, now it's funny. But. <laughs> <laughs> 
we can also think about like how crazy look how dark and then this changes right it's like the sun just came out and was like i'm gonna roast all y'all mm-hmm. you need to use brave browser it cuts the ads oh good to know this one again i think you can kind of see some of the windows ba- okay this video is not the best one i thought That's this okay. was it doesn't matter anyway point is you can at least see what it looks like passing by and then the this one didn't land right. this was just air bursts from this comet coming so close and it First was of all, it was small it was small still scary as all get out because i don't want to see that coming at me <laughs> right and yeah people i don't i don't recall a ton of people being hurt necessarily it's just more like the air burst all the windows busting open right glass shards things like that no and big. so you could imagine, okay, that was a small comet, yes. small meteor. What would happen if a much larger catastrophic one was just like, I'm going to crash into you. I'm here. To be fair, uh, part of the reason we don't experience more space debris is because of the gas giants. Jupiter yeah. does an amazing job of protecting us from most of that sort of phenomenon. Thank God. Doesn't mean it doesn't happen at all because didn't we just see a report today? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Abby shared this with us today. <sighs> this is insane. I'm pulling it up right now. So <laughs> it's like <laughs> we plan to talk about this ancient meteor event. Oh, by the way. Did you hear about this (laughs) actual meteor event? Did you hear about this? So asteroid NASA hit in diversion mission is acting so mysteriously. An investigation was launched. I that asteroid was like, bye NASA. Yeah. You want to hit me? Uh. So an asteroid hit during NASA's successful DART mission in September 2022 is acting mysteriously and not clear why. Back in 2022, NASA tested their DART mission to see if we're capable of altering the trajectory of an asteroid. Why would you? I don't, okay. To do so. I mean, I get it, but I'm just right. saying like, leave it alone. Is it coming at us? Leave it alone. I think that is kind of like the point is they're testing that ability yes. in case something catastrophic. So yes. we don't have to do what's that movie where Bruce Willis like goes to space and drills on the asteroid. Yeah. Armageddon. Armageddon. Yep. And just see the dramatic scene of them walking. Yeah. Anyway. Yep. Um, to do so, NASA crashed a probe into the target Dimorphos and successfully changed its trajectory. Dim- Dimorphos or orbit around the larger asteroid Didymos was shortened by 33 minutes within weeks of the impact. But then something else started happening. High school teacher Jonathan Swift at California's what Dutch a name. School. I know. Jonathan Swift. Amazing. Mm-hmm. Some people just get lucky like that. <laughs> At California's Thatcher School, and his students used an observatory at the institution to keep track of Dimorphos and found its orbit and trajectory were changing rather rapidly, according to New Scientist. Let me, oh, hey, look at that. Okay. The number we got was slightly larger, a change of 34 minutes, Swift said of the mysterious change in orbit that was inconsistent at an uncomfortable level. Mm. Swift and his students presented their research at the American 
Astronomical Society's New Mexico meeting in June and received a very positive response. Nancy Chabot, a coordination lead for the DART at John Hopkins Applied Physics Laboratory in Maryland. She said her team continued to observe and investigate Dimorphos after the mission and will publish its own results in the coming weeks. So uh, we're just going to stay tuned for that one. Right. Yeah. And so then that begs like the big question, because if catastrophic space events are cyclical, perhaps that's part of the uniformitarian belief they should consider. Right. I don't know. Yeah. It's also <sighs> so much with comets and all of this stuff, but it's, you, you can't, you can see it coming. And I mean, obviously we're aware of what's going on, but at the same time, how much control do we have over these events? Right. Cause they like knew that the Chelyabinsky river or uh, meteor was coming like 10 days before it was here. Yeah. That's not enough time to do anything about it. It's not enough time to get Bruce Willis in a spaceship. Right. Get him up there and save the day. And first of all, Bruce Willis is getting kind of old now. We need like a new and younger Bruce Willis to like be on standby just in case, you know. I don't know if anybody can do that hair. Whatever that. Or the lack thereof. And then the lack thereof. Yeah, I don't know. At one point he did and then just went weird. Anyway. Random, random stuff. But yeah, I feel like on the one hand, you have the environmental activists who are like, the world is going to die. Mother Earth is going to kill us. Mm -hmm. And then the geologists are over here like, don't look at the meteor. Nothing to see here. Definitely not going to get us. Nah. We're fine. Everything's fine. It's going to be okay. You're good. It all I know that's fine. Graham Hancock's big concern. He's mm -hmm. like really worried that they're ignoring the possibility of a catastrophic meteor coming and destroying us all. Right. What I love about that is fingerprints of the gods. He was like very, he had a very good argument, not saying that I agreed with all of it, sure. but it was very like plausible ish, easy to follow, blah, blah, blah. And then at the end, he's like, but maybe this meteor is going to take us out if we don't stop loving each other and being good to each other and like send out those positive vibes into this. I mean, it's not exactly what he said, but right. basically like sending out those positive vibes into the atmosphere so that the comet doesn't come in and get us. I mean, I believe in the rapture. I believe in end times. I believe in all of that. So for me, it's like, yeah, I mean, if mankind isn't, you know, decent. <laughs> right. God's wrath is going to be the end to all of us. But, or the, the you know what I'm saying, right. eventually. But it was just funny to me that that's kind of where he went with it after this huge, long book, which was fascinating and dry all at the same time. And that's kind of where he yeah, took it. Yeah, that checks out. <laughs> yeah. On the other hand, so this is my, like, weird spiral in my brain, is that if they do know that there is an impending comet doom for all of us. Dun, dun, dun. And there's nothing that can be done about it. Do you tell people? Mm. I wouldn't. I'm just saying the pandemonium. 
Well, I think there was a movie recently about that, right? It's like, don't look up. And oh, it yeah. was just like some lib movie where it, that was supposed to be an allegory for climate change or whatever. And you had these uh, two people who were going around saying a meteor is going to come and kill us all. And everyone's like, the news people were like, don't look up, don't pay attention, right? No, it's not going to hit us. And go about then, your day. Go about your day. And then it kills everybody. Um, I'm like, oh, that sounds like a great movie. <laughs> but that's. I, I don't know. I struggle with that because on the one hand, I don't want to be doomsdayer right. and be like, well, there's nothing we can do. If something happens, God's just going to wipe us out. I think this is the same problem with people who are pre-trib rapture. They use the rapture as an excuse to not do anything because God's going to whisk us out of here and we don't have to worry about the tribulation. We don't have to prepare, do anything. And I think that's just like not a healthy way of looking at it. That's not what God calls us to do. God calls us to act. We're supposed to be living out our faith every day, not sitting by idly watching the world go up in flames while we wait for his return. Like Mm -hmm. that's why we have the great commission, you know? Right. Um, not to say that we could do a whole lot if God descend, decides to send a meteor our way, but in a way we can. Yeah. We can pray for a miracle. Yeah. Miracles can happen. I feel like we've forgotten this power of prayer. Yeah. Yeah. We focus too much on some. I mean, I think it's easier to focus on like bad what ifs. Right. Instead of the positive. You know, like it's a, it's like if somebody compliments you all day long. And then one person is like, you're stupid. That's what you remember. I hate that. You know what I, mean? I see that in myself so intensely. I, I don't know why I'm like this. It's I'm right like, there with you. But yeah, uh, I mean, it's human nature, I think. It is but human nature. Yeah, it's kind of the same here as like, let's not forget the power of prayer. Let's not forget who's in control. Let's not forget about miracles. I don't, um, I like thinking about the theory of, the, I like the impact theory about the younger dryass. I don't know necessarily that I'm all about it, but at sure. the same time, I do think it's fascinating. There's a lot there. I'm not saying I'm not for it either, though, because the evidence that has been found just in this short amount of time relatively right. is phenomenal. And it does make you think, like, there is a connection to something with comet does make sense i don't know how do you do you agree with this theory are you kind of i don't know i something definitely happened i feel like a comet explains a lot of the evidence and if we think about some of the historical records of that particular time period we've got plato talking about the sinking of atlantis very specifically dated to this time period very strange But if we think about it, a comet like that melting all of the ice turns all of that ice into liquid water. Another interesting thing that could very easily be dated to this time period is the Great Flood. Yes. And so who's to say that God didn't send a comet to kind of help along all of this water from coming up out of the earth. I think in Genesis, it says out of the heavens. Yes. Very specifically. Yes. You know what comes out of the heavens? Comets. Comets. (laughs) 
So what if they're just using the language of the time to describe the effects of what happened and not necessarily how it happened? A comet came from the heavens and caused all of this water to flood the earth. Because that's not the, obviously the only source of water. There was the water bursting forth from the earth. There was the rain for 40 days. When you take all of it accumulatively, a global flood actually makes more sense than yeah. it did without it. Without think, it. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. And I think that's a great idea, too, is that this is just part of the bigger picture of the flood. And... This one, oh my gosh, you could research, obviously, you could research this for a very, very long time. Yeah. Because there are connections here that, I, like, I have questions, but I can't, without really diving deep. So when we talked about the flood, we talked about Lake Missoula and mm -hmm. that how that affected the great, the um, Washington and West. The Scablands. Yeah. Yes, the Scablands. The Scablands, the Scablands created the Scablands. also referenced a ton yeah. in the research for this. And I know we talked about the Scablands already. If you guys yeah. missed it, go back and listen to episode two. Elise did an amazing job of talking about And also about made a fool of myself with YouTube. So you could listen you can to get all of that. Youngest thing. It was a great episode. Yeah. But well, you're right. We did. Yes. Yeah. It is referenced so much in Younger Dryas Theory. It is one of the pieces of evidence that is pointed to. Yes. Exactly. The, so it, and that's kind of where I took that to explain evidence for the flood. Right. So you have these connections. And then this is also just talking about North America for the most part, the younger dry ass yeah. impact theory. Right. Even the Northern just like hemisphere, if we're talking about like You're Canada, right. Greenland right. and Europe, like the yes. Fennos, Scandian ice sheet. So we've got like that whole area to deal with. Ice. Exactly. That's a huge area. And when you think of all of that ice melting. That's a big deal. Yeah. That's, that's not, it doesn't just go into the ocean and the sea levels rise, which of course they, it did. Right. But still that water is displaced and dis, and it's going to, anyway, it makes sense for a flood. My thing is what I'd love to look into further if I had like hours and hours of time. Right. Was like connecting these dots in this time period to other things happening elsewhere around the world. I mean, of course, you have the um, jet stream oh, yeah. that was affected and things like that. But what what else happened at this time? Right. If anything, that that they could trace. It's all relative. It's all kind of subjective. But I think you could make more connections here. But this, then the, then our episode would be like 10 hours long. <laughs> and. Right. I wouldn't even stick around for that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm pretty sure like Randall Carlson did this huge conference where he did like subsequent three hour lectures about this. I, I mean, it, it's just like crazy. So. This episode is basically like an entry point into Younger Dryas Theory in the Clovis Comet. Uh, it is by no means an exhaustive list of all of the pieces of evidence. I think we talked about the key pieces. Yes, But definitely. there's still so much out there. There's so much, but at least with this, and for me, it gave me like a more comprehensive like understanding of all of this because there is a lot to it. So at least it's like 
I might be able to carry on a conversation about it now and and not feel totally lost and not feel like, I don't know. Yeah. So thank you for all your hard work because I know that was a lot of hard work to like it's, break all that apart. <laughs> it was a lot of work, but you know, what, when you sit back and look at all of it, it's like, Oh, I feel like I understand it better. Cause yeah. when you get down into the academic literature, it is just like bone dead dry. I mean, it's rocks. Like I'm, I'm sorry, I'm not a geology nerd, but when you get into it, it actually is fascinating. And I wish there was a better and more interesting way these theories could be presented. And I guess that's why we're here. That's what we're we're doing. Yeah. Yeah. That's what we're we're making it more fun. So I hope you guys enjoyed it. Yay. Thanks for being here, everybody. Yeah. I was digging it. So before we go over to rumble and chit chat with everybody that I have been, um, I had to start, I had to start ignoring it when... (laughs) I know. Oh, we started talking about Babel. I was like, I'm going to lose it. Uh, so before we jump over there and chat with everybody, um, we have a review to read at least. Yeah, we have two actually. <gasps> so the first one comes from Base Jenna H. Uh, her review is titled Ley Lines. I'm guessing it's a her, Jenna. I don't know. Maybe I don't know. Tale as old as time. Liar lines are, it sounds oh, like. Yeah. One I was once told, which was more along the lines of God took those that conspired against him and said, if you want to be a liar, that's fine. I'll make you a liar as an L-Y-R-E. Then cast one down on the earth. And now today we call the strings ley lines and the wood resulted in trees. Then he gave the other one to Adam and said, here it wants to be a layer and play with words. So now it's going to be whatever you want it to be. That's where we get the saying as above, so below. I did not know that. Mm-hmm. Plenty more where that came from. If you're curious, thanks for all that you guys do. Good work with your critical thinking skills and excellent job narrating. Both are increasingly rare abilities, and there is no reason for that. May the Lord bless you. Oh, thank you so much, Jenna. Thank you. Appreciate it. I also like the ley line story. I, li- I didn't yeah, know I like that. the story. I like that a lot. Yeah. So That's if you cool. write us little stories in the reviews, we will read those too. We'll read it all. Uh, the second one comes from Jess B six eight seven, instant favorite. I found them through conspiracy pilled and thought, why not? I'm so glad I did. I started from the beginning and can't stop. These ladies are so interesting to listen to. I love the knowledge they have on topics and their research. If you're on the fence on trying this one, just do it and dive right into their quirky world. Thank you so much. Thank you. That was so sweet. You guys that, are awesome. It just warps my heart to read those. I know. Yay. Thank you. And now I just want to Shia LaBeouf it like, just do Do it. it. That's right. So if you are listening to this show, if you are on the stream, like that smash button, subscribe to yesterday's channel. I mean, to this channel. I don't know. Words are hard. Um, uh, Monday, we are talking about the Tower of Babel on no it was not on purpose. It was not on purpose. I swear it was not on purpose. It wasn't. We didn't even but it's know happening. it was our week to do Bible study. Yeah. I think we just confirmed that yesterday. Like, yeah. It's us, right? Yeah? No? Yep. Yeah. It's us. It's us. And so Here what do you go. got for us next week, Elise? <gasps> next week, we are going to talk about the seven wonders of the ancient world. I am super stoked because... Um, I think I only could name five before I started my research. I was like, I, I know five of the seven. 
I do and too. <laughs> I'm terrible. Yeah, I was like, uh. So we're gonna dive into like what makes them, you know, wonders. What makes them so wonderful? What what um, did they exist? Is there what's still standing? If anything, actually, right. I think only one really is still standing. I don't know. All that jazz. We're going to jump into it. And uh, Nimrod is what we're going to talk about. Yep. Now all kind of, it still kind of ties into what I'm talking about next Friday, which I didn't plan either. <laughs> One big loop. So yeah, that's what we're doing. It's going to be fun. I'm excited. And okay. so stick around for the rumble chat. And for those of you listening, we will see you guys next time. See ya. See ya.